Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, As you know, uh, or maybe you don't know if this is your first time here, we've been working through 52 weeks, Know the Bible. And, uh, you know, we're going through the whole Bible, not thematically as you currently have, you know, your regular Bible. We're going through it chronologically, so it's a little bit different this year. Um, But if you've been keeping up with the reading, which we hope that you have, you'll know that now you are in everyone's favorite book of the Bible, which is Leviticus. I, I say that in jest because Leviticus is not everyone's favorite book of the Bible. In fact, most of you are probably grinding, trying to get through it. It's not really the, the book that you know, people just prefer to read on any given day. There's a lot of confusing things. And I think that's, that's the case for, for a couple of main reasons right off the bat, why Leviticus is a hard book to really dive into. Uh, first, in large part, it's because Leviticus is a book that just simply lacks the glitz and glamour that other books in the Bible do, such as the ones that we have just gone through, Genesis and Exodus. You know, you have character development and lots of good narrative and some hard conflict and some good resolution and some epic heroic leaders. And Leviticus just simply lacks that. It doesn't have any epic narratives or tales. And Leviticus also just lacks any you know, larger than life figures that have their own adventurous storyline that you can follow, kind of like Joshua or Judges. It, it it's essentially lacks that it doesn't have a story. There's no character development in Leviticus. There's no narrative that really draws you in or naturally sparks your interest. Um, so, I mean, think about it like the Veggie Tales, right? If you grew up watching Veggie Tales, you don't remember a book on Leviticus, right? That would be a little bit weird if so. It might not just involve veggies, but maybe knives. That would not be good for kids. Uh, but but, but in, in seriousness, you know, when you're, leading, when you're reading Little Junior, a bedtime story at night, you don't typically gravitate towards the book of Leviticus to, you know, put him to sleep or, or to get him excited. You would typically use like a story of Moses, you know, that's more exciting um, than the book of Leviticus. But now that you think of it, maybe you want to read them the book of Leviticus because that would put them down instead of amp them up. So... Just a little tip from Uncle Austin when you have kids one day. Um, But essentially, you know, Leviticus doesn't read like a narrative or an exciting story that you might see one day become a Netflix original film. It reads more like a technical academic journal that you might pull off of a dusty shelf in a law firm. That's just the case. That's why it's not everyone's favorite book of the Bible. In in terms of a storyline or character development, it just lacks that. But secondly, another reason why, you know, Leviticus might not be your favorite book is because it also lacks immediate life principles or immediate life applications. You just don't see that in Leviticus. For example, the book of Psalms and Proverbs, right, you can read. And there's no storyline or character, but it immediately resonates with you because it's about personal life applications, personal wise sayings. Like, oh, I can immediately find that as relevant to my own life. Well, you're not really going to find that in Leviticus. Even the Song of Solomon, for example, maybe it's not, you know, life application or a nice gripping storyline, but it leads to some kind of uh, provocative exchange between two lovers that might draw you in. Okay, and even in, this, even in the New Testament, at least if there's not character development or storyline or principles, there's still like doctrine that we know that we want to follow. So it seems more immediately relevant. Leviticus, on the other hand, just doesn't have that. Uh, and it doesn't give you that initial immediate satisfaction when you read it. Sometimes you'll be reading it and you'll find yourself asking the questions like, wait, what? What, what did I even read just then? Or, or, or rather, I just spent three minutes reading through this. And I don't even know what I just read. You know, it's kind of like reading a textbook where your eyes are going down the page, but your mind is like far west. And you're like, wait a second, I, how, do I, how did I get back there? And you got to read it all over again. And Leviticus is just one of those books that is not only dense and boring at times, it's also just downright confusing and seemingly irrelevant too. You'll come across some verses in your reading and scratch your head and think, 
How does that even apply to me in my situation? For example, let me give you some. Uh, In chapter 16, it tells you what kind of underwear you're supposed to wear during a certain ritual. So you're like, okay, I'm wearing my Lululemon instead of jockey today. Does that mean I'm like warranting the wrath of God? How do I know? Or maybe in chapter 19 where it says, and I quote, you shall not round off the hair on your temples or mar the edges of your beard. In other words, that nice, clean, fade haircut that you just got, that is sinful. And not just in the good way. You might not be, is that what the Bible is really saying here? Or or what about another uh, reference in chapter 19 where it says, you shall not make any cuts on your body or tattoo yourself. And you're like, wait, so it's sinful to have tattoos? Come on, God, like even the tattoo of like Jesus in a Bible verse, is that sinful? Not allowed to do that? That's what it says. Or here's another one, chapter 11. Um, It says it's sinful. This is a big one in Texas. It's sinful to eat pork and bacon. And you're like, oh, no. Is the Bible challenging my order at Torchy's Tacos right now? Because if so, I might have to rethink a little bit about my Christianity. That brush fire taco, that's no way that's sinful. I know that the logo of Torchy's Tacos is a devil with a pitchfork, but it has to be from heaven. Okay, I know that. Or what about in chapter 23, where it tells you when you're supposed to sacrifice a goat versus when you're supposed to sacrifice a lamb and vice versa. You're like, oh, yeah, that's so relatable to me. Yeah, I do that every Tuesday. What about you? Of course not. That doesn't seem very relevant. Or what about another one in chapter 19 where it says, do not wear a garment of cloth made of two kinds of material. You're like, okay, so that Ralph Lauren polo you're wearing probably has a mixture of polyester and cotton. Sinner. You know, like, what are you supposed to do with that? Or or, or here's another one. This is the last one. Just so you don't think I'm making this up. And I'm going to quote it word for word. Uh, This is chapter 20 and verse 18. If a man has sexual relations with a woman during her monthly period. Okay, this is not me. This is the Bible. He has exposed the source of her flow and she has also uncovered it. Both of them are to be cut off from their people. So you're like, okay, so for having sex during a period, they kicked us outside of the community for an indefinite time. Like we're over the border at this point, effective immediately. Raises some questions at first, you know, one, how would anyone else know that that was the case if you did? I don't want to ask that question, but this isn't, you're not hearing these things from me. This is in the Bible. And so you're like, what do I meet? What do I do with this here? I mean, these aren't great life verses that you would just so naturally pick up, right? If you go to your Christian bookstore here, you're never going to see a verse from Leviticus glazed on a coffee mug. And you're like spinning coffee, my time with Jesus and coffee this morning, you know, while I sacrifice a lamb, you're like, no, you don't do that. That's just a little bit. And if you see someone like that, they're a psychopath and get away from them. Uh, so yeah, you're probably thinking at this point, okay, Austin, you're really amping up this message about Leviticus. I, I know, I, I hear what you're saying. I realize that talking about different kinds of sacrifices or even the kind of underwear that you should wear doesn't exactly put you in a worshipful mood. And I also realize it's confusing to hear things like no shaving, Okay, or what clothes that you can and can't wear. Okay, how does that apply to me? I, I, I get that. And so if you've ever read the book of Leviticus and you're ever confused or weirded out or just altogether lost on these subjects, I want you to know you are not alone. But all of this is to say that even though the book of Leviticus is dense at times, boring at times, seemingly irrelevant at times, and just downright confusing, it's nevertheless perhaps one of the most important books in the entire Bible. In fact, the main theme of Leviticus is the linchpin for the entire message of of the Bible and the entire substance of really our Christian faith. So do these verses, all of which that may seem strange or weird, do they apply? Yes, 
in some way or another, and, and we'll get to that today. So for the rest of the time that we have, I want to do two things. One, I want to give a zoomed out Google Maps perspective of the entire book of Leviticus. And then I want to kind of narrow in and zoom in on one chapter in particular that is the hinge that kind of holds it all together. And that hopefully will clear up a lot of thinking that it might be irrelevant or confusing at times. And then I'll speak why there's some, some practical applications about that. So, so number one, let's look at the context of Leviticus, zoomed out, Google Maps kind of framework, answer the big questions. What is this book about? Who is it written for and why? And how does that affect me? So, so we got to first ask our, ourselves this question. Where does the book of Leviticus come in the Bible chronologically? Do you remember? Remember where we ended last week? The end of Exodus. And what was happening at the end of Exodus? Last week, the end of Exodus, the Israelites were being idiots over and over and over again, rebelling against God. That's how Exodus ends. So Leviticus starts not with the Israelites rebelling. It actually starts, chapter 1, verse 1, with God calling from the tabernacle to the Israelites who were removed out of his presence, saying, hey, I want to create a way for you to be made right with me. I want to create a way where you can live in my presence. So that is the message, if you're taking notes, of the book of Leviticus, is God making a way, providing a way for you to be right with God. God making a way for you to be right with God. That's the message of Leviticus. Well, how does God do that? Well, why does he have to make a way first? I think that's most important to ask. Well, because God is all good, all pure, all just, completely perfect, we individuals, we humans who are marred by sin, simply can't live in the presence of God because otherwise the Bible says we'll die. So maybe you're thinking, okay, wait a second. You said that God was good, but if we're sinful and we come near him, that seems like God is dangerous, not good if we just die in his presence. Well, we'll think about it like this. I've heard it said that God's presence is like the sun. It's pure and absolute power and goodness. So when something small or mortal or corruptible comes near it, it just is immediately disintegrated. Think about throwing a tissue paper up against the surface of the sun. It's gone. That's kind of like the way that we relate to God on our own terms in our own corruptible mortality when we just think that we can approach him anyway, our own, especially in our sin. And so what God does for the Israelites in the book of Leviticus is he provides a way to have a right relationship with them so that they don't have to be destroyed from God's wrath so that he can still be just and still be good at the same time and welcome them in instead of destroy them or turn them away. Okay, now God provides a way for his people, which is the message, by providing several different solutions. Okay, solutions that are given in the form of sacrificial processes, codes, rituals, policies that may seem very strange to us for now. But we're going to look at why those things, God set them up and why those things might seem dangerous or strange to us now, but why they made sense back then. So another big question, we'll get back to that, is who was the, who was the book of Leviticus written for? Or, or why was it called the book of Leviticus? If it's a book that is about make, making people right with God, why not just call it like, excuse me, the book of reconciliation or the book of restoration or something like that? Well, it's called the book of Leviticus because the tribe of Levi in the nation of Israel, they were the ones who were responsible for administering and standing on behalf of the rest of the people uh, to God and administering the sacrifices and, and the solutions that would make the whole nation right with God. Think about it kind of like a politician who represents and speaks for and acts on behalf of a certain people group, right? We live in a democratic republic. We have representatives who are our voice, who are our presence at the bigger governmental level. Well, that's the same way. The ordinances of how to be right with God for the Levites, 
is essentially like the Constitution to our Supreme Court justices. It, they know exactly all the ins and outs of the policies. They know their whole way around every ritual, every policy, being right with God in this country versus being right with God in that theocracy at that time. So in our day, the politicians are the ones who represent the people. That's exactly who the Levites were, and that's, they're called priests. So I know priest is a more of a Catholic term in our, in our own day, but priest essentially means a special representative to stand on behalf of other people for God. All right, so the Levites were the priests, and they're the ones to administer these solutions to make people right with God. That's why it's called Leviticus. Now, what are these types of laws or prophecies, or uh, policies rather, that we need in order to be made right with God? Well, there's three types of laws. And I know that at the beginning I referenced all these random, confusing, weird, strange rules or policies. This kind of falls into this category. So if you're taking notes, I want you to write this down. This is very important. There's three types of laws or solutions that we see brought out in the book of Leviticus. Number one is the moral law. The moral law. All moral laws deal with just ethical absolutes at all times to all peoples. That's how they apply. So like think the Ten Commandments, like don't steal, don't lie, don't covet, don't greed, don't murder, all that kind of stuff. That's that, that is a moral law. Social justice, for example, sexual integrity, healthy relationships. That's moral law. Living by these would allow Israel to remain in right fellowship with God. But that's not the only one. That's your moral law. The second one is a legal law. Number two, legal law. There are civil laws and legal codes that God gave Israel, but it was only for Israel at that time. So think about if you had like a, a legal dispute or a civil claim, that would change culture to culture based on how they would administer justice in their own system, right? Well, same with Israel. They had a legal law. And then thirdly, and this is the one that we all love, your third type of law is sacrificial or ritual law. Sacrificial or ritual. You can say ritual laws or sacrificial laws. They're essentially the same. And these are laws that deal specifically with the sacrificial system. Like what you can and cannot do when you are giving a sacrifice or coming into the presence of God. So who is allowed to do what? When you are you allowed to do it? What you're allowed to wear in the process? All those details. That falls under the sacrificial or ritual law. So let me, let me expra- uh, extrapolate and explain some of these like laws that speak to ritual impurity. Because it, it can be a little bit confusing. So um, there, there are actions or situations, circumstances that would make you, quote unquote, impure to go into the presence of God. Now, these things aren't sinful. They just make you ritually impure. And I'll kind of describe that distinction. There are five main things. One, it, in terms of ritual impurity, one is contacting, having contact with bodily reproductive fluids. That's kind of gross. Yep. But I'll, I'll get to that in a minute. Two is having a skin disease. Three is touching mold. You're like, what? Four is touching dead bodies. So those three, uh, contact with reproductive fluids, skin disease, mold, dead bodies. You're like, that is, why does that make you impure? Those are all gross. Yes. But why did God pick those things to make you ritually impure? Are those just arbitrary? Like, are they just without any meaning? No. If you think about it, there's actually a common thread underneath all of those four things. And that is that they're all, all of those things are associated with mortality and a loss of life. They represent death. And so you can become impure and contaminated when you touch these symbols of death. And death is the opposite of God's character and holiness because the essence of God's character of the essence of God's character and holiness is life. So if you're full of symbols or whatever that represents death, you can't just come into God's presence who is life and expect that there to be 
full fellowship there. So, so he, he's trying to make a point that God's holiness and how we approach him approaches all areas of life, not just the ones that we compartmentalize and label as quote unquote religious. Does that make sense? And there's a fifth one. This is where the pork and bacon comes in. I know they all wanted to hear that one. There's a fifth example that makes you ritually impure, and that is just eating certain animals. And unfortunately, the Bible doesn't speak explicitly as to why that is. Maybe it was just cultural taboo, or maybe it was just a symbol of death towards your hygiene. I don't know. It doesn't, it's not clear right there. But overall, those are the five things that were to remind Israel of God's holiness and being in a right relationship with him and how it affects all things, not just what you do. So th- those are the three laws. You have moral, legal, and ritual or sacrificial. Now, the key is to know which of the laws, when you're reading Leviticus, which one falls into which category, because that, that'll be important, and we're going to get back to that. But what's interesting is that this book of Leviticus is broken up into seven sections, seven sections, and each section harps on one of those three laws. And uh, structurally, it's really significant. So I, I wrote out a little uh, chart here. I don't know if y'all can see it in the back row. But the book of Leviticus starts with ritual or sacrificial laws, so R, then it goes to legal, then it goes to moral, and then you have a, a really weird one in the middle, chapter 16, and then it flips, it's like a chiasmus, do you remember that word, chiasmus in like English, I know I'm a nerd, it means that like if you have a, a structure, it's like A, B, B, A, like it, it's like a symmetrical reflection, literally, anyway, uh, and then it goes back from moral, chapter 16 to moral, then legal, then sacrificial. So it's almost as if the whole book is folding up on itself. On one hinge, chapter 16. What is chapter 16? Well, chapter 16 is the most significant ritual of the book of Leviticus, and it is the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement is the one, it's the centerpiece that all these laws, all these rituals, all these policies, all hang on and depend on for their ultimate meaning. So maybe if you're new here, like, atonement what is what is that i don't really use the word atonement in my everyday english yeah i don't really either uh, but but essentially atone the word atone just means to cover over or pay pay for sin through sacrifice something atones for something so sacrifice is the picture here for the seriousness of sin our position before god and how we need someone to make us right and these sacrifices these rituals are what will atone for our position of uncleanliness so that we can be made right with god Okay, so that's kind of a zoomed out overview. Let me zoom in to the chapter 16. So if you have your Bibles, open up to Leviticus 16. Leviticus 16. And uh, we're going to, instead of use a Google Maps view, we're going to narrow it in with a magnifying glass and and look more particularly at the Day of Atonement because that'll make everything else, it'll it'll make sense of all those other things that might seem more confusing. So I'm going to go ahead and read because y'all know me. I talk a little bit long. So, and let's start um, with verse, I believe it's four. I actually didn't put it in my notes here. But this is what it says. This is how Aaron is to enter the most holy place. Aaron was the high priest of that day. This is how Aaron is to enter the most holy place. He must bring first a young bull for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. Verse six, Aaron is to offer the bull for his own, own sin offering and to make atonement for himself and his own household. So first he has to cleanse himself so he can be clean before he can rightly uh, administer sacrifices for someone else. So verse 7, Then he is to take two goats and present them to the Lord at the entrance of the tabernacle. He is to cast lots for the two goats, one lot 
or uh, sorry, one goat the lot, the, uh, lot is cast on will be used as a sacrifice and the other one as a scapegoat. Verse nine says, Aaron shall bring the goat whose lot falls to the Lord and sacrifice it for a sin offering. Verse 10, but the goat chosen by lot as a scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to be used for making atonement by sending it into the wilderness as a scapegoat. Okay. So to summarize the next 10 verses after that, God essentially tells Aaron how to make the sacrifices of the lamb that will be sacrificed to atone for the sin, to take the punishment of the sins of the people of Israel. That's what happens to the first lamb. What about the second lamb? So go to verse 20, if you can skip. When Aaron has finished making atonement for the most holy place, the tent of meeting in the altar, the tabernacle, he shall bring forward the live goat. He is to lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites, all their sins, and put them on the goat's head. Then he shall send the goat away into the wilderness in the care of someone appointed for the task. The goat will carry on itself all the sins to a remote place and the man shall release it into the wilderness. In other words, all the sins are paid for and then all the sins are removed. So this is a powerful symbol here of what God is trying to say about how he wants to take care of the sin of Israel. Verse 34, this is to be a lasting ordinance for you. Atonement is to be made once a year for all the sins of the Israelites. So let me just summarize that Spark Notes version real quick. Once a year, the high priest, he goes in, he, he's a special representative before the people of Israel. He goes into the tabernacle, takes two goats, one he sacrifices uh, as this punishment for their sin. And the other one, he sends off casting all their sins on the other one to be thrown into the wilderness to create the picture that God desires once and for all to remove sin and its consequences away from those who he loves so that he can have a right relationship with people. Okay. Now, why is that significant for us today? Why are these like goats and lambs? Why is that significant? Well, the same solution that God gave the Israelites is actually a template for the same solution he gives us now. In fact, you might just not just say a template. You might say a, a massive neon light pointing to the way that he's providing salvation for the world right now. Or what do you mean right here, Austin? Are we supposed to like abide? How are we supposed to abide by the same laws that Israelites do? I mean, the moral, the legal, the sacrificial, like what, how do I do that? Am I supposed to do it? No, you're not. Don't go home and do a lot of these Old Testament laws. Here's why. Because the entire Bible, at least on this side of history, is pointing to a figure, Jesus Christ, who would come and fulfill and embody and accomplish all that the laws were purposed to do at the beginning, which was to make us right with God. How so? Well, well, if you read Leviticus and you look at the gospel, there is incredible parallels back and forth that show you that you're on the right track. So number one, for example, during the Day of Atonement, Aaron, or a high priest, would cleanse himself and make sacrifices for his own sin, then represent a sinful people making atonement for their sin. But see, in the gospel, you have another figure, Jesus, who would come, who would be from the lineage of Aaron. So he was qualified, except this high priest, Jesus wouldn't have to cleanse himself and make sacrifices for his own sin because he was sinless. Okay, number two is that the high priest would then enter the Holy of Holies, the presence of God, where the mercy seat was. The mercy seat was where the laws of the covenant were that were broken by man. And the blood would drip on the law to symbolize payment for, sac- for uh, the law that was broken. Okay? But at Calvary, you see the same thing. Jesus would approach the judgment seat of God. Not the mercy seat, the judgment seat. Not to receive mercy, but to receive the wrath that we deserved 
for breaking the law. His body would be broken for the laws that we broke and his blood would be poured out to pay for our sin. So at Calvary, this figure would not just offer an innocent, perfect lamb to be slain. He'd offer himself for the sins of the people. And Jesus is not just the lamb who was slain. He's also the scapegoat here in the gospel because he was cast out from the presence of God. He was cast out from the community. When Jesus was crucified, where was it? It was outside the city. That's not arbitrary. That's not like just a coincidence. He was crucified outside the city, away from the presence. He's not only our priest, he's our perfect sacrifice. Jesus is not just one who comes into the temple to bring a sacrifice. He himself is our temple. He is the presence of God. Colossians 2.9 says this, For in Jesus the whole fullness of the deity dwells in bodily form. The whole, whole deity. So if you want to know God, if you want to be in the presence of God, if you want to know him rightly, you have to know Jesus. That's the only way. In the Day of Atonement, high priests could only wear a seamless robe when they were administering a sacrifice. Why? I don't know. That's just the way it was. But at Calvary, do you remember what Jesus was wearing right before he went to the cross? A seamless garb. Okay? In the Day of Atonement, the priest would roll the dice to see which goat would be the scapegoat and which one would be slain. What was happening when Jesus was being crucified? The Roman soldiers were rolling dice for his clothing. In the Day of Atonement, there was also a veil that separated the Holy of Holies, the presence of God, from man. But at Calvary, the God-man, dividing God and man, his flesh would literally be ripped so that the presence of God and man could be together. See, if you were a Jew witnessing the crucifixion, you would see very clearly the whole process of the Day of Atonement playing out before your own eyes. Except it wasn't a lamb that was being slain, it was the lamb of God. So, what does that mean at least in terms of all the laws and policies and codes we have regarding this book, right? Well, Hebrews 10 says this, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. They just cover sins. They don't take away sins. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices, offerings, burnt offerings, sin offerings, you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, though they were offered in accordance to the law. So it had to happen. Then he said, here I am. I have come to do your will, Lord. He set aside the first to establish the second. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus once and for all. It says day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties again and again. He offers the same sacrifices, which can never fully take away sins. But when this priest, Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God for by one sacrifice... He is made perfect forever those who are being made holy. So it means that Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice. Because he is, we don't have to keep sacrificing animals for our sin. Because he's the ultimate sacrifice, that also means ritual laws, sacrificial laws are all obsolete. You don't need them anymore because he's already fulfilled them. They're abolished. They've been made obsolete. So what does that mean for us practically? Well, well, I got to address a common objection here because I'm sure you might have heard it from college or maybe you know friends in the office i don't know have you ever heard like a non-christian email on the internet have you ever heard a non-christian say you know who's very skeptical of christianity ah uh, christians they just pick and choose the, what they want to believe in the bible they're just so inconsistent you know they won't touch a razor to their face yet they're doing that you know they're not supposed to eat pork yet they love torchies tacos and yet they're not supposed to wear a shirt that has two different you know uh mixtures of fabric and yet they're wearing ralph lauren And yet they have the audacity to say homosexuality is wrong. Give me a break. They're just picking and choosing what they want to believe. 
What, how, do you say, how do you respond to that? Have you ever heard of that line of reasoning before? I know I have. So what do you say? Here's the answer. Yes, we are picking and choosing. <laughs> That's the point. You're right. Thank you for recognizing that. But we're picking and choosing where the Bible tells us to pick and to choose. That's where, think about it this way. They're not, they're not understanding the context or the content of the Bible. They're just reading it all. Oh, they're reading it in an incorrect way. Think about it like this. Okay, think, think about like a, like a hall pass, right? You used the hall pass in fourth grade because that was the law when you were a fourth grader, okay? Now, when you went to high school, they didn't make you have a hall pass, right? Because they don't care about you anymore. <laughs> but they don't make you use a hall pass in high school. Why? Because they, can, they trust you that you know what you're doing and you know your way around the school. You don't need to be having your hand held. So if you're in 10th grade and you're still using a hall pass, it's a little bit weird. Why? Because the hall pass has been made obsolete. You don't need to use it anymore. Same thing for Christians. The sacrificial, the ritual laws, these things that were only uh, prescribed for priests, we don't need that because Jesus is our high priest. It would be obsolete for us to only wear one, if you like, pure linen shirt, go for it. I kind of do. But you don't need to do that in terms of like ritual sanctity. It doesn't make it. But, however, in the fourth grade, there were still some laws at, when you're in fourth grade that still apply to you right now. Okay? For example, if you steal, if you cheat, if you abuse, as a fourth grader, that law is still binding because that's a moral law. So you can be 50 or you can be 15, and that law is applied to you across the board because that is a moral law, the M. It's not legal or it's not sacrificial. We don't follow the legal or the sacrificial laws anymore because Jesus came and abolished this. So when someone says, you know, the inconsistency of the scripture, I would challenge them and say, maybe perhaps they're not seeing what scripture is about after all. It's not laws. It's not something to just kind of fit yourself into. It's about a person who, that you're, who, who you're made to stand in awe of, who fulfilled these things so that you don't have to. Okay? So just think about it like this. So you have the law. And that's what it's supposed to show you. And it points to Jesus. But even the moral law, for example, that worse, that all applies to us today. What's the solution? Can we be made right with the moral law? No, because we're not perfect. We can't do that. So the moral law functions right now in our lives in two ways. It, folk, it, it functions as a compass. can show us where to go. And it can function as a mirror. It can showing us what things need to change in our lives. But it can't empower you to be a better person. It's just not what the law is meant to do. I've heard it said like this. The law is like an x-ray. The moral law is like an x-ray. It'll show you where things are broken. <laughs> and they're really, really expensive. And you might think that after all the money you spent on an x-ray, that it would have just healed your bone from that was broken. Nope. You got to go to go something else to take, take care of a broken bone. The x-ray can show you that it's broken and that you need help. But it's not going to empower you to live a better life. That's where the gospel comes in. Only can you change when you reflect on the one who was broken for you. That's because you don't obey to get God's approval. You don't obey to get things from God. You obey because God did everything for you. It reverses the script. That's why it points to the necessity of Jesus. The book of Leviticus is not a book about laws and, and sacrifices and rituals and all these things that don't make sense to us now. They're pointing to the necessity of Jesus for meeting the high standard of justice that we couldn't attain so that we can finally be welcomed into his presence by faith. Which is, accept, which is open for all people. That is the book, essentially, of Exodus in 30 minutes. 
So that, I know it's a long, long book with lots of confusion, but that's kind of an overview, and it hinges on the Day of Atonement, which points explicitly to Jesus. Now, what that means for us, I'll wrap up with five short points. Number one is that God wants a relationship with you. God wants a relationship with you. You know, so the book of Leviticus starts this way. Chapter one, verse one. The Lord called to Moses and spoke to him, this is important, from the tabernacle. From the tabernacle. In other words, The entire book starts with people who are far away from God, who can't come into God's presence. And so God is the one initiating conversation. He's the one speaking out to them. He's the one reaching out to them. He's the one doing what it needs to take, providing a way to make it right with the people. He wants a relationship with you. That is what the book of Leviticus Leviticus is all about. Every other religion in the world is a ladder. You got to keep climbing and climbing and pull yourself up by your cowboy boots and just do your best and hopefully it'll be good for you. Christianity is not a ladder, it's a cross. It's an altar where God was sacrificed so that you wouldn't have to be. And, and he, that, that's what God is saying. He's pursuing you and he's doing so at an incredible cost to himself. That's significant because that changes how we approach God. We can't do it on our own, so he has to do it for us. Number two is this. There is a way to be right with God, but it's only one way. There is a way to be right with God, but there's only one way. I know it's not popular in our culture today to say there's only one way to God. It's popular to say there are many ways to God. God is like this big mountain and there's tons of many paths up to the top. And whichever way you choose, whatever way you feel is right for you is good for you. That's popular, but that is highly offensive to God, especially in light of the gospel. Why? Because if that's the case, then this whole process, all these details, all these requirements, all these specifications... All the sacrifices, and especially the sacrifice of the Son of God himself, were for nothing. All these things point to how there is only one way. See, when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, remember what he pleaded with God? He said, Lord, if there's any other way, please remove this cup from me. But not my will be done, but your will be done. And what did God say? He said, this is the only way. This is the only, there is no other. See, if if there were other ways to God, then what God made Jesus do would have been insanely cruel. He would have been insane. That is not, but if it was the only way, then it is unbelievably loving for you. The question here is, is not, well, why does it have to be that way? The question here is, why is there any way at all? It, it, that, seems, that seems archaic that there has to be a sacrifice. Why, why should there even be a way open for us? The, the, when we realize the, the depth of our sin and the height of his, of his majesty and justice, we're not... We're not, when we recognize those rightly, we're not drawn to negotiation here. We're drawn to worship. And it's easy. You just accept it. And, and, and too often in our culture, we think we have some negotiation or leverage with God. But when we look at the gospel, we realize, why would we even want negotiation? We, we need to see things rightly. And the Leviticus gives us that. Number three, this is short. You need perfect righteousness because perfect righteousness is the only way to be saved. You need perfect righteousness because perfect righteousness is the only way to be saved. You can't be made right with God who is perfectly righteous without having perfect righteousness. It's just logical. Where are you going to get perfect righteousness from? That's only found in one place, Jesus. You can't get that from Buddha. You can't get that from Muhammad. You can't certainly not get that from yourself. You need Jesus. That's just a logical conclusion. Number four is that the gospel changes you from the outside in. Most of us like to say the inside out, but it's really the outside in. Because we often look to make changes in our own life by first looking at ourselves. I need to be less anxious. I need to be more loving. I need to be more 
forgiving. I need to be more generous. And we're like, oh, I just got to work harder and harder and harder and harder and harder. And then you, maybe you'll do that for a short term, but then you'll get burnt out. Why? Because you're starting with yourself. What Leviticus tells us is that you're, to be made right with God, you can't start with yourself. It has to be done outside of you that you, through faith, trust in. And so when you realize that, when you, when you focus on the righteousness of God paid in your place, it makes you a more forgiving person when you just rest in that because you realize how much you've been forgiven. When you rest in what he's done for you, you become more generous with your time and your money because really that's just the overflow of what he's done for you in Christ. When you, you become less anxious because when you look at the gospel, you say, well, my, that's just the overflow of my self-worth, so I don't need to be anxious over whatever. Because if, if he died for me when I was his enemy, certainly he'll take care of me now that I'm his son. So when you reflect on the gospel, when you see in light of what he's done for you, just like Romans 12 says, in light of the mercies of God, might I add, who offered up himself for you, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice to the Lord. This is your spiritual act of worship. You do it in light of what he's done, not to get what, he, what you want from him. He's already done it. The gospel changes us from the outside, and it starts with what Jesus has done for you, and that encourages you to do something for him in return. And then five is this, and I'll wrap up here. You can have assurance of your salvation. This is big. You can have assurance of your salvation. We already know that chapter one, verse one started with God was calling from outside the tabernacle. How does Leviticus end? That's how it starts. God was calling from outside the tabernacle. How does Leviticus end? Well, the better question is how does numbers begin? Numbers begins in the exact same phraseology. It says, this is no coincidence. It says numbers one, chapter, chapter one, verse one. It says God spoke to Moses in the tabernacle. Not from this, in the tabernacle. Why is that significant? Because it shows it worked. It shows the sacrifice worked. And the Israelites could have assurance that they would be accepted, that they would be saved because of the sacrifice of the lamb. See, I know animal sacrifices seem so barbaric, but in that day and age, that was the way that people would buy favor from the gods. And in a way, we kind of do that with our own gods. You know, if you want approval, then you'll sacrifice things to get approval. And if you want money, you'll sacrifice things to get money. And you want status, you worship that, and you'll sacrifice things to get status. Or romance, you'll sacrifice whatever to get that. But what's interesting in the ancient world is that whenever people would sacrifice to these gods, these gods were fickle, they were unpredictable, you never knew if they were going to turn on you or just ignore you, or maybe it was just never good enough, you never really knew. So it always kept you in a state of fear. But the God of the Bible does something different. He says that I want to give them assurance. I, God, the God of the Bible says I love people. I want them to know for certainty that they can be loved and forgiven despite their corruption and that they're safe to live in my presence. And so he gives us a sacrifice. And by the sacrifice, we know that we're saved. We have assurance that we're saved. And so Christians can say, I know I'm going to heaven. I know I'm right with God. Why? Did you do anything to earn that assurance? No, that's the point. Because Jesus was the one who paid it. We have assurance, which gives us both humility and confidence. So to conclude, I I did shorter than you thought I did, didn't you? Yeah, that's right. (laughs) To conclude, God can't just say, I forgive you and just sweep sins under the, cosmos of the, under the rug of the cosmos. That's not just. That's not good. So he paid for it himself. He paid for it so that you wouldn't have to. So he was just, but he's also gracious. At the cross, you see that perfect intersection of grace and justice. And when you realize that, when you reflect on that, that in Jesus Christ, that's offered to you, that he stood in your place, it changes you. You realize that your false gods will bleed you dry, but only Jesus bled for you. And, and he gives you that solution, which is not trying harder, 
It's just resting. Finally gives you rest. So let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, Father, we thank you for what you've done for us and what the book of Leviticus means that uh, when we were far from you, you came and made a way for us. And even though it's full of strange and weird references that we other, other times we just don't really understand it, we all know it now it all points to you. And you got, I'm reminded of a, of a hymn that says, uh, there's a fountain filled with blood drawn from <clears throat> Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunge beneath that flood and lose all their guilty stains. Thank you, Father, for the way that you cleanse us in a way that we couldn't cleanse ourselves. Help us to reach others who don't know you and uh, glorify yourselves in and through us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.